Great to see you all here this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to 2 Samuel with me. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I'll just divert your attention once you've got there to our side wall up here, um, to the new decorations that we have. So this year we're going through victory and if you ever lose track throughout the year of where we're at and where we're going, you can just have a look up there. So we're on our first sermon series for the year and we're finishing that up today and that's on songs of victory, studies in the Psalms. So next month we're going to be going through Isaiah and we're going to look at the hope of victory that Isaiah saw as he anticipated the Christ who was to come. So this is what we've gone through this year, uh, sorry, this month, Psalm 20, Psalm 44, Psalm 107, and today we're looking at Psalm 3. So Psalm 3 is an incredible piece of poetry, and it's based in a story, and it's a gripping story. Um, You'll be glad that you didn't go to the movies this morning and that you came here instead, because I reckon we've got something better than what Hollywood can offer. This is a story of adultery of lies, of abuse, of a powerful figure uh, being publicly exposed. It's a story of devastating consequences, repercussions and grief. It's a story with the big themes in it, with the themes of life and death, with coming of age, with grief, identity, courage and corruption. Sounds like Hollywood. Sounds like Harvey Weinstein and and some kind of drama in the news. Sounds like something that you read about. It's actually a story that comes from 2 Samuel and it's what Psalm 3 is all about. Psalm 3 is an incredible piece of poetry. If I told you this morning that archaeologists had discovered a beautiful Iron Age piece of uh, poetic literature that summarised a great power struggle between a father and son, between two feuding kings fighting over a crown, that would be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? Well, it turns out we have that story. It's just in our plain old Bibles, and sometimes we don't see the excitement of it until we, until we look. So let's look at the story behind Psalm 3, and then we'll look at that psalm, that psalm of victory. So... Let me introduce to you a person that you're very familiar with, King David. King David is known as a hero in all regards. To say that King David had family troubles would be uh, an incredible understatement. We talk about Solomon and we talk about the mistakes that he made with too many marriages, too many kids, too many family issues. But David was, was really the initiator of all of that. After all, David had numerous wives. He had at least 20 sons that we know of, um, countless daughters as well on top of that. David had not just um, sons to different wives, but therefore these sons had rivalry. They had contention. If you've ever had family problems, I dare say they haven't been as bad as David's family problems. After all, he had a son by the name of Absalom. Now, Absalom was a rebellious type. He was a, uh, a fugitive. He was a vigilante. He was a take-the-law-into-your-own-hands kind of boy. When his brother Amnon committed uh, a vicious crime, and you can read the backstory in 2 Samuel 13, he decided to take the matter into his own hands. He decided to enact justice and murder his brother. 
just like on uh, a reality TV show, of course, he faces the consequences. He gets evicted from the island. He gets sent away from Jerusalem. He gets evicted from the house or whatever it might be. And he spends three years in exile. And then he returns to Jerusalem and he spends two years not talking to his dad and not talking to anyone there. And then Absalom returns. He wants an audience with the king. He wants to come back to his dad once more and to restore that friendship. And so we see in 2 Samuel um, chapter 14, the final verse um, that's there. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 33. Uh, it says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So, the rivalry in Jerusalem was restored. That's the end of season one, right? But if you've ever seen a reality TV show, they always bring back the villains for season two to create more drama. So in chapter 15, this is season two of the drama. And Absalom is starting to create trouble. So Absalom decides he's going to win back the opinion of the people and he's going to win popularity from the Israelites away from his father David, who is the king. In Second uh, Samuel 15, verses 1 through 12, it says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute um, to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you from? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So David was king, but Absalom, his son, who was a, a vicious, murderous type, he decided that he would steal the attention away from King David. And he took the attention by going and speaking to people and saying, if only I were king, your problems would be solved. If only I were king, you would be heard. And this is what happens in verses 7 through 12. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow, which I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counsellor, for his city Gilo, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So eventually what happens is this. Absalom steals the attention away from everyone. He says, David, your king isn't doing a good enough job. And the hearts of the people, instead of being loyal to David, 
start being loyal to his son Absalom. David hears about this in the next two verses, verses 13 and 14. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. In our day, when you have a leadership spill, the person who you know, uh, gets ousted from office gets to go on 60 Minutes and gets to have an interview with Tracy Grimshaw and gets to tell their side of the story. And they get to commentate whenever uh, a news item comes up, they get to give their opinion on the news. Uh, in the Iron Age, that's not how leadership spills worked. In the Iron Age, when there was a leadership spill, there was a blood spill at the same time. You had to run away or else Absalom was going to kill his father and bring death to David. So David has no choice. Absalom steals the hearts of the people. David says, we've got to get out of here, guys. We've got to run. And he runs. And he flees into the north, and Absalom follows. Absalom brings a big army out to kill his father. Again, you think you've got family problems? I don't think you've got anything on, on David and Absalom unless um, you know, you've got death and murder and attempted um, you know, warfare in your family. The, this family was certainly, um, uh, it had problems to say the least. So Absalom brings his army out to the, the forest of Ephraim. And Absalom's there, he's riding on his donkey, riding into battle to kill his dad. And David is far behind. He sends his army out to protect him. Absalom, a bit of a clumsy fella it seems, was riding underneath a tree. He gets stuck in the tree. We don't know exactly how. Maybe his head got stuck. Maybe it says, the Bible says he had very long hair. So maybe his hair got stuck in the branches. Maybe his cloak got stuck in the tree. We don't know how it happened. But he gets stuck there by his head. And he's dangling. And the people see him in between the tree and the ground. He's caught. And they come and they murder him despite his father's pleas to leave the boy and protect him. So David goes from sadness to sadness. I don't know the saddest moment of David's life. Maybe it was the five years that he spent running away from Saul, away from his family, with Saul out of jealousy trying to kill him. Maybe it was when he was publicly shamed for his secretive affair with Bathsheba. Maybe it was watching his seven-day-old son die because of that affair and because of his actions. Maybe it was knowing that his daughter was sexually abused because of his actions and the sins that he had done. Maybe it was watching his son Absalom murder his other son, Amnon, in that family rivalry that came again from his actions. Or maybe it was the day that Absalom betrayed him after he had forgiven Absalom of his crimes, when Absalom deliberately created a mutiny in the kingdom and actively tried to not just dethrone David as king, but tried to murder him as well. But I suspect the saddest day of David's life was the day when Absalom was murdered 
in 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18, verses 31 to 33. The Cushite brings the news to David about Absalom. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. That's code for he's dead as the dodo. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. There's so many dark and awful things in David. And I suspect that this one was the darkest. Just to recap, if that story kind of went over your head, here's how it works. We've got King David. He has all the people following him. He has two sons, Absalom and Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon. I couldn't think of a better way to describe death there, so that'll have to do. And then the people move uh, from King David to Absalom. And Absalom dies, and this is his tomb. You can go and visit it today. Um, it seems like this building itself was, was established long after Absalom's death, but the Bible does mention that there was a pillar um, for the place where Absalom died. It is customary for the Jews to walk past Absalom's tomb and to throw rocks at it um, as a sign of disrespect for this awful, awful young boy who did nothing um, but tear David's family apart. And yet in all of that, I can, I'll talk to you at the end there, Kev, if you want. At the end of Absalom's life, David weeps as his son dies. David had many enemies, and he talks about this in Psalm 3. So let's turn to Psalm 3 now and look at this psalm. Now you notice at the beginning of the psalm there is a title and the title is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So this is the context of the psalm that we're reading. It's in the middle of this awful sad story that David pens this piece of poetry to reflect how he's feeling. And the psalm goes like this. In verse 1 it says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. You know, later on in verse 6 of the psalm, he actually numbers how many of them. He says there are thousands of people who are opposed to me. The point is this, that David had his enemies. That just because he was a man after God's own heart, it didn't mean he had no enemies, didn't mean he had no troubles. He was a man... Uh, with many foes. It says in verse 2, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is the main point of the psalm. The point is, David, in this dark, dark moment in his life, this moment of, of grief and anguish, 
where people are opposing what he's doing, where people are saying that there's no salvation even from God at this point. The question that David has to ask is this, where does salvation come from? Who does salvation belong to, even in a dark moment like this? Isaiah 43 verse 11 says, I am the Lord, besides me there is no saviour. Hosea 13 and verse 4 says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no saviour. When Jonah is in the belly of the fish, he knows who the saviour is. He knows that the only way he's getting out of the fish is to turn to the one true living God who offers salvation. He says in Jonah 2 and verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's go to um, the next few verses there. Verses 3 and 4. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. God is a shield. He actually describes himself in that way. When he appears to Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abraham, for I am your shield. You think about David and how much he relied upon his shield in an age of warfare, in an age of of battles. David, who knew the importance of walking into the battle with his shield to protect him. And David says, the shield that I'm bringing into this battle is the Lord. He is the one who can quench the arrows, who can stop the swords of my enemy. He says that the Lord is my glory and the lifter of my head. Um, our posture says a lot about us, doesn't it? You can often tell how someone's feeling based on how they're looking, how their posture is. I know when Hannah um, comes and sees me watching the soccer, she doesn't need to look at the scores to see who's winning. <laughs> she just needs to look at the direction of my head. If, I'm, if my head is bowed down to the ground, if my face is drooping down, she knows what's going on. She doesn't need to be able to uh, know how soccer works to understand that. So the lifting up of the head is, is this idea of when you're cast down, when you're in those moments of, of your head drooping down in sorrow, God is the one who lifts it back up. God is the one who turns the day around and brings joy and encouragement once more. In verse 4 it says, I cried, to the Lord, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. The point in the Psalms over and over and over again is to ask you this question when you are at your lowest where do you turn do you turn towards God or do you turn away from God I think that is the biggest indicator of your spiritual condition if you want to know where you sit spiritually right now probably better than your daily Bible reading probably better than um, your prayers and such is when you are at your darkest moment, do you turn towards God or do you avoid God? The spiritually healthy person, the person who is in good relationship with God, will not just turn to God when things are going well, but at the darkest part of your week, at the, at the hardest part of your day, that's the part where you realise salvation comes from the Lord and I'm going to turn to him for help. In verse 5 uh, and 6, it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. This verse is really relatable. Have you ever lost sleep? 
Have you ever not been able to sleep because you're anxious? You realize what David's saying here. <laughs> you think he lost sleep over his son? Do you think he lost sleep over the uh, affair that he committed, over the life of Uriah, who he openly murdered, the marriage that he broke down between Uriah and Bathsheba, the son, the child who died at seven days old because of his actions? Do you think he lost sleep over those things? Do you think he lost sleep when Absalom killed Amnon? Do you think he lost sleep when Absalom did the rebellion? when Absalom was hunting for his life? Do you think he lost sleep in Second Samuel 18 when he said, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And he says this. This is how David cures his insomnia. He turns to God. He casts his cares upon God. When your mind is tossing and turning, when the anxieties of life are rushing through your mind, the Bible says that, it may not fix it straight away. It may not be an instant cure, but going to God and giving him your cares and your anxieties, it's a good starting point for insomnia. It's a good start to getting a good night's sleep. Some of the other Psalms actually talk about still being kept awake all night, so we know that it's not a cure-all, but certainly it's a good start. In verse 6 he says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Can you say that too? Can you say, I won't be afraid though the majority is on the other side. I won't be afraid even though I'm on the minority with God. God's people have always been in the minority. It didn't phase Noah when he was in the minority. It didn't phase Moses when he had to go to Egypt, confront the most powerful nation in the world, with all of their army, with all of their soldiers. When he was in the minority, it didn't faze him. It didn't faze Gideon when he faced the tremendous army of the Midianites with a mere 300. It didn't faze Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego when on the plains of Dura, when the thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, bowed down to the statue when they were in the minority, it didn't faze them. It didn't faze Hezekiah when the thousands of soldiers surrounded Jerusalem. When he was on God's side in the minority, he stayed faithful. It didn't faze Jesus when the crowds left him when they walked away. It didn't faze Jesus when the crowds turned against him and he was left on his own. It didn't faze the early church when they were a tiny, struggling group just trying to live faithfully towards Jesus up against a Roman world that was completely intolerant to their faith. It didn't faze them that they were in the minority. So what if we don't have the biggest numbers? God's people have never had the biggest numbers. If that phases you, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding of the history of God's people. We've always been the minority. That doesn't mean we lose heart. It doesn't mean we stop having faith. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me and all around. In the US Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, he had a lot of trouble getting his generals to act. I was reading through some of the letters that he was sending to the generals at that time. They had the, the, um, the more strength, but the generals were worried because they saw the 
the armies of the uh, opposing people. And they saw the size of their armies. And they thought that they were outnumbered. They thought that the armies against them had more power. In reality, they actually had a far bigger army. In, rea- in reality, they had much stronger um, military might. They were far superior. But they didn't act because they thought that the opposition had more power. They overestimated the strength of the enemy and it led to inaction. Doesn't that describe the church so often? We overestimate the, the size and the power of the enemy and it leads us to inaction. We stop fighting because we're afraid. We stop fighting because it seems like we're the minority. Stop fighting because we're a small congregation and we think, oh, the, the world is just too big. The problems are just too numerous. The enemy is just too powerful. And we give up even though the power is on our side. Or we don't fight because we're too afraid of losing. We're afraid of the many thousands of people. We're afraid that we're on the losing side. But David is not. And David calls us to have his courage. In the final verses, David calls God to action and he calls himself to action. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Salah. Note the triumphant answer here to the beginning of the psalm. Go back and read verse 2 with me. Psalm 3 and verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And note the ending. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. People said there was no salvation and David said, I don't believe it. I trust God over what people are saying. I trust God over what the numbers suggest. I trust that salvation really does belong to God. You look at where we're heading this year. We're heading to Revelation. That's going to be our final sermon series. And I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler here. Uh, We're going to go to Revelation and and get a bit of a taste of that before we go back there in December. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. Now, Revelation is hard to understand because it's saturated in symbolic um, imagery. It's, it's saturated in, in language that, that represents all of these figures and symbols. But you've got to kind of cut through that and get to the heart of what it's saying here. So um, you don't have to understand every single word and every single illustration. Um, just understand the main point here. In Revelation 7 and verses 9 and 10, it says this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation gives you a hint as to what happens after this age is finished. After this age is done, those who are faithful to God will surround his throne and will say quite confidently, salvation belongs to our God. And that's a quote from Psalm 3 and verse 8. 
salvation belongs to the Lord. You realize the power of David's statement there. David says in the middle of all of his troubles, he is going to recognize, despite any persuasion to the contrary, despite any plausible arguments otherwise, he is going to say firmly, salvation belongs to God and I believe it. And you can't change my mind on it. And John, when he's recording Revelation, he looks forward to the age to come and he says, in that age, we're going to say the same thing as David. We're going to be quoting that same mantra that God's people have always been saying, that salvation belongs to the Lord. It always has and it always will. Whether you decide to admit that in this life and bow the knee now, or whether you deny it now and are forced to bow the knee in the life to come, that's the deal. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Don't be swayed by the numbers. Don't be swayed by the opposition. Be confident that salvation is God's. So let's summarise what we've learnt as we've gone through these songs of victory. In Psalm 20, we saw David confidently place his life in the hands of God. He knew that some people trusted in horses and some people trusted in chariots. He said, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand. That psalm is all about the victorious people of God go to God before the battle begins. They know where the victory comes from. In Psalm 44, we hear perhaps the most honest prayer in all of Scripture. We hear a plea for God's help in times of trouble. The psalm accuses God of being neglectful, of being absent, of being negligent, careless, disloyal. The psalmist shakes his fist to the heavens and he says to God, wake up. And the psalmist tells us, it's not a bad day. It's, it's not just a bad day where everything gets resolved at the end. Psalm 44, it doesn't have a resolution. Things are just bad. It's just a tough life for him. But then Paul in the middle of his triumphant declaration in Psalm 8, he quotes from Psalm 44. And he says, yes, life is tough. Yes, it feels like God is absent sometimes. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Psalm 107, Ian showed us last week, through the deserts, through the imprisonments, through the ill health, through the storms of life, these are moments not to give up on God, but to turn towards him. To remember that these are things that he gives us so that we look to him, not so that we give up on him. And finally, Psalm 3, a psalm where foes and fears are countless, a psalm where David faces pressure from everywhere to give in and to give up. And he doesn't. God is faithful. God delivers him. And one day, you and I, if you are faithful, if I am faithful until death, we will sing these songs of victory in heaven. We'll sing these songs of confidence, declaring God truly does author our salvation. And we will not be disappointed by the victory that he offers. Let's sing about that victory now and hope for that victory to come.